0: On the 19th of May, 1536, the very first queen in English history would suffer the ultimate punishment. Anne Boleyn was led from her chambers inside the walls of the Tower of London to a specially built scaffold on which she would die. After addressing the crowd that had gathered to see their queen be executed, Anne, with a prayer still on her lips, was beheaded with the single strike of a sword. In that one stroke, excuse the pun, Henry VIII had destroyed his second wife, and after her death, he would go to lengths to destroy her memory further. One of the most well-known aspects of Anne Boleyn's life is that we don't know when she was born, and therefore we cannot say how old she was when she died. The dates of either 1501 or 1507 are usually put forward, placing Anne anywhere between 28 and 35 at the point of her death, For what it's worth, I'm a firm believer in the 1507 date, although I was a committed 1501 for a long time. We also, very frustratingly, cannot say for sure exactly what Anne Boleyn looked like. But after her death, any portraits that existed of the Queen were either destroyed or lost, and we only have fleeting first-hand accounts of what Anne looked like by her contemporaries and those around her. There are, of course, many portraits and sketches depicting Anne Boleyn, or at least claimed to, but none are contemporary to her lifetime. And the Holbein sketches said to be Anne, one of which is in the British Museum and the other in the Royal Collection, cannot be confirmed as undoubtedly her. However, over 300 years after her death, Anne's story and how she looked was re-examined. But during the reign of Queen Victoria, Anne's bones were uncovered and examined for the first time since the 16th century as were the remains of several other notable figures from Tudor England who had lost their lives on the scaffold. And so today, I will revisit that moment from 1876 and break down what happened at the exhumation of Queen Anne Boleyn. Hello and welcome to the Tudor Chest, the podcast, Episode 1, The Exhumation of Queen Anne Boleyn. After Anne Boleyn's execution, her body would suffer further indignity when it became clear that no coffin had been prepared for her to be interred into. A gross oversight for which there's never really been a satisfactory answer. It's, I suppose, reasonable to conclude that Sir William Kingston, the constable of the tower, had quite enough on his plate having to oversee the execution of the Queen of England, his queen, and could be forgiven for forgetting this one thing. But that is what happened. And as such, a spare arrow chest was found. And it was in that that the remains of Anne Boleyn, the first queen in English history to be executed, were interred. Anne was laid to rest inside the chapel of St. Peter at Vincula, a quite little church inside the Tower of London's walls. Hundreds of people are buried in this church. Even traitors to the crown, as Anne was deemed, received some degree of reverence in their burial. As such, the location of where Anne was said to have been laid to rest was passed down through the annals of time as were the locations of other notable people from Tudor England who had perished on the scaffold. So people like Queen Catherine Howard, Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, who was executed alongside Catherine Howard, Edward Seymour, Protector Somerset, and Lady Jane Grey. As time passed, the church fell into a significant state of disrepair. What I think is interesting to consider is that were it not so that the notable people buried inside that church it's entirely possible that a decision would have been made to just demolish the building, because if we consider that a lot of the Tower of London Anne Boleyn and her contemporaries knew is now lost to us. Parts of the Tower fell into disrepair and were destroyed over the years, and, and very, very sadly, lots of the elements from the Tudor era are now gone. And as such, the church could have followed in that trajectory, but I think because of the people that were buried there, it in some respects maybe saved it. In 1848, a historian by the name of Lord Thomas Macaulay visited the Chapel of St. Peter, and thereafter he recorded his thoughts on the church in the first edition of his book, The History of England from the Accession of James II. Suffice to say, he was not impressed at what he discovered. He wrote that he couldn't refrain from expressing my disgust at the barbarous stupidity which has transformed this interesting little church into the likeness of a meeting house in a manufacturing town. In truth, there is no sadder spot on earth than this little cemetery. Now, clearly his outrage was not treated particularly seriously at the time, for it would not be for another 30 years in 1876 that anything was done about it. A senior British Army officer, Sir Charles York, had been appointed the Constable of the Tower, and he recognised that urgent repair work was needed on the Chapel of St Peter. And so he submitted a restoration plan to Queen Victoria to approve. The purpose of the plans were twofold, really. The first was to just ensure that the chapel was architecturally sound. And then the second was to just generally improve the space, so to install heating and make it a more comfortable, place to be. And the big reason for that was that the church was still used as a place of worship for those who lived and worked inside the Tower of London and is still used for that purpose to this day. It amazes me that people live you know, a place of such history and such brutal history, but for many people, they call it home, and which is just an astonishing thing. One of the biggest issues facing the repair team at the time was the flooring. It was very badly damaged, and it just made the whole building unstable. The decision was therefore taken to just relay the pavement, which had sunk in several places, and that was hoped that that would work. Once flooring was lifted, there were hundreds of human bones found. They were all scattered together, and that was probably done to make room for more human remains. Queen Victoria, even though these people were unknowns, and we have no idea, we can't say who these people were, Even so, Queen Victoria ordered that the greatest care and reverence should be exercised in the removal of their bones. These bones that were found were then labelled up as best they could be and reburied in the Tower Crypt. Perhaps the most delicate challenge was restoration work needed at the chapel's chancel, for the record showed that that was the burial site of those very significant Tudors, such as Boleyn. Margaret Pole, the Countess of Salisbury, John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, and so on. Naturally, as little disturbance of human remains was a primary concern. And so the initial decision was that, like the rest of the church, new pavings would just go over the top of the old, they could just leave the chancel alone completely. Unfortunately, although with hindsight, fortunately for us as historians, A surveyor at the time examined the chancel area and discovered that it was also sinking. The only solution was therefore to lift the paving slabs away and replace them with matching tiles to ensure that it was in line with the rest of the church. And so, whilst that was undoubtedly more work than had been initially intended or hoped, it did provide a fascinating chance to study the remains of some of England's most famous, most controversial historical figures. Queen Victoria herself maintained a very keen interest in the work and instructed her own professor of medicine, Dr. Frederick Muat. I'm going to stick with Muat throughout. Please forgive me if I've butchered that surname. But she instructed Dr. Frederick Muat to undertake an examination of the remains uncovered and, where possible, to assign an identity. On the spot where Amberlynn was said to be buried, the stone slabs were lifted and at a depth of about two feet, the remains of a woman were found. Dr. Moat stated that they belonged to a female of between 25 and 30 years of age, of a delicate frame of body and who had been of slender and perfect proportions. The forehead and the lower jaw were small and especially well formed. The vertebrae were particularly small, especially one joint, the atlas, which was that next to the skull, bearing witness to the queen's little neck. As many will be aware, supposedly prior to Anne Boleyn's execution, when she was told how she would die, she put her hands about her neck and laughed and said that it would be easy for the executioner to do his office for she only had a little neck. Dr. Merwitt went on to say that the bones found, certainly those of a female in the prime of life, all perfectly consolidated and symmetrical and belonged to the same person. The bones of the head indicate a well-formed round skull with an intellectual forehead, whatever one of those is, a straight orbital ridge, large eyes, oval face and a rather square full chin. The remains of the vertebrae and the bones of the lower limbs indicate a well-formed woman, a middle height with a short and slender neck. The ribs show depth and roundness of chest. The hands and feet bones indicate delicate and well-shaped hands and feet with tapering fingers and a narrow foot. Now, immediately what jumps out, particularly the end of that description, is the fact that Queen Elizabeth I, the daughter of Boleyn, was known for having exceptionally long fingers that she loved to show off. Dr. Moat concluded that in life, the bones belonged to a woman who would have stood between five foot and five foot three in height, which by today's standards is obviously reasonably short, but by the standards of the time was average height, and that, in his belief, the remains were definitely of Anne Boleyn. It was reported that Anne had been buried next door to her beloved brother, George Boleyn, Lord Rochford, who had obviously been executed two days prior to his sister. No remains of George were found, though. And now they were either moved elsewhere in the past, and, and that fact has been lost to us, or he was just buried much closer to the North Wall, where restoration work was unnecessary. The thing we should probably consider is, were these remains Amboleyns? This was a time, you know, pre-high-level DNA testing. The ability to examine these bones was still reasonably rudimentary. And as such, there is some discussion as to whether the remains were ambulins. Personally, I think they were. I think they were Amboleyns remains, and I shall go on to explain why I think that momentarily. But Alison Weir, who is obviously a very, very notable historian, does not believe that the bones were Amberlyn's, but instead puts forward the theory that they were either the bones of Catherine Howard or more likely Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. Dr. Muir describes a second set of female bones that were discovered nearby, and he describes those bones as belonging to a woman aged 30 to 40 who had also been delicate of body. It is those remains that Alison Weir believes are Amberlyn's and that the bones that he thinks are Anne Boleyn's are probably Jane Boleyn's. Alison Weir's assessment for this really comes back to two key features. The first is the fact that Dr. Muat said that the bones belonged to a woman aged 25 to 30, with Weir countering that because she believes, as do many, that Anne was born in 1501, that she would have been 35 at her death, and thus the bones belonged to a different woman. Also, the rather interesting description of the skull having a rather square full chin. Now I must admit that when I first read Dr. Millat's report about about a decade ago now, that detail did strike me as odd. but I think when I think about it, that, and like we're, no doubt, was my own view of how I thought Anne Boleyn looked. And that was, I think, basing it very much off of the very famous National Portrait Gallery portrait of Amberlin, for example, with the well-known Bee necklace or the Heather Rose portrait both of which she has a decidedly pointed chin, which is at odds with Muat's description. However, if we look at the two sketches attributed to Hans Holbein, the first in the British Museum and the second in the Royal Collection, in both, the sitter has a much squarer jaw. As a lot of historians have put forward the belief that these sketches could truly be Anne, then that detail does correlate with Muat's description. Just adding more weight to his assessment, Weir remains unconvinced, and she concludes in her book, The Lady in the Tower, that we can be almost certain that Anne's memorial stone does not mark the last resting place of her actual remains and that she lies beneath Lady Rochford's memorial instead. As I believe that Anne Boleyn was more likely born at the later date of 1507, and that the Holbein sketches are also more likely to truly depict her, I see no holes in Muat's assessment and agree that the bones he uncovered. Were indeed Anne Boleyn's. Moreover, from the simple fact that exactly where Anne was said to have rested is where the bones were found. And it's that sort of Occam's theory of the simplest option being the right one. It just feels right to me here. And if we also consider that Goyne Courtney Bell, who acted as secretary to Queen Victoria, he was the secretary of the Privy Purse and sat on the committee undertaking the restorations, he said that they consulted various historical authorities all pointed to the identification being correct and that where Anne was said to be buried is where they found those remains. So I just can't see it being wrong. So what of the other remains of people that were uncovered? Close to the spot of what I believe are Anne's remains, the bones of two men were found. It was said that two Dukes were buried between two queens. Dr. Moabat confirmed that one set of the bones belonged to a tall and broad man of about 50 years old, and concluded that they were the remains of Edward Seymour, 1st Duke of Somerset, the brother of Queen Jane Seymour, who had been executed on the orders of his nephew, King Edward VI. The other male remains belonged to a large man, about six feet in height, and aged about 50 years, and included a large skull, which the committee believed belonged to John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. Dudley is regarded as suppose, one of the villains of Tudor England. There aren't many John Dudley champions out there. He was the father-in-law of Lady Jane Grey and was executed shortly after Queen Mary I swiftly overthrew the rule of Jane Grey. And as he had been so instrumental in placing her on the throne, it was inevitable that he would suffer death, even though he converted to the Catholic faith, I think, in the hope of trying to Lessen mary's resolve but she was having none of it and he was duly executed his actions and the actions of jane Grey's father as well really ultimately led to the deaths of his son lord Guildford dudley and of course the aforementioned lady jane gray who could have been as young as 16 at the time of her death the queen that was supposedly buried next to the two Dukes by a process of elimination tells us that that would have been catherine howard but unfortunately, no remains of Catherine were discovered. Like Anne Boleyn, no confirmed date of birth can be prescribed to Catherine Howard. Most estimates place her around the ages of 19 to 21 at the time of her death. She might have been as young as 17, it is possible. And it was that, it was her youth that is believed to have been the reason for why no remains were discovered. Had she been that young, her bones would have not sufficiently hardened with age, and the fact that there was a presence of limestone in the ground means that, unfortunately, her remains would have simply turned to dust. To the right of where Catherine Howard was once buried, the remains of two further women were discovered. The first bones belonged to the woman that I referenced earlier, that of someone aged 30 to 40 years of age, which the committee believed belonged to Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. Jane Boleyn was the sister-in-law of Anne Boleyn as the wife of Anne's brother George. Jane Boleyn had been implicated in the downfall of Catherine Howard and was executed shortly after the Queen. This, for me, just adds further weight that the bones of Anne Boleyn are the bones of Anne Boleyn. It doesn't make sense that the woman executed directly alongside Catherine Howard wouldn't have been buried right beside her. That seems illogical. That wouldn't have been what had happened. And because Jane Boleyn was believed to have been around the age of 37 at the time of her death, it placed her in exactly the right age bracket as described by Muat. The second female's bones belonged to a woman of considerably advanced years who had been tall and certainly of above average height. The conclusion here that these were the remains of Lady Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. Margaret Pole had being one of the great nobles of Henry VIII's reign. She was by far and away the most senior female noble in the country after the king's daughters and his wives, at least in her own right, because she was Countess of Salisbury in her own right, which was a very rare honour. She had planned to be buried in very great splendour at a chapel named in her honour within the Priory Church of Christchurch. And that chapel can actually still be seen to this day In the wake of her execution, it would remain vacant, and instead her remains were laid to rest at the tower. Margaret Pole's execution caused the end of Henry VIII's reign is really considered by many to be one of his most senseless and cruel acts that he ever committed. And in a reign characterized by its bloodshed, that really is saying something. She was nearly 70 years of age by the time of her death, which by the standards of the time was ancient. The barbarity that she would endure at the block, it just remains one of the most shocking stories to ever come out of the Tower of London. Although the myth that she ran around a scaffold being hacked apart, I'm afraid to say, is very likely to be apocryphal. There is no real proof to it. Several other notable Tudors were buried on the west side of the chancel, but because work didn't need to be carried out there, the remains of those people were untouched. They included Guilford Dudley. Lady Jane Grey, and also Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who was the one-time great favourite of Queen Elizabeth I. The remains of those found were, after they had been examined and labelled as best as they could be, they were then placed into individual leaden coffers with a small engraving of the name of the person whose remains were inside with a date of their death and a date of their reinterment. These were then placed in the floor of the chancel at a depth of about four inches. Marble memorial plaques are then placed over each person buried in the chancel, and that's where they remain to this day. Every year, it's a really lovely thing, that every year on the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, May 19th, a bouquet of red roses is delivered to the Tower of London anonymously with the instruction for it to be placed over the plaque carrying Anne's name. The identity of the sender has never been confirmed. There's some who believe that it might be a descendant of Mary Boleyn, or it could just be somebody who really loves Anne Boleyn. We have no idea, really. One of the things that some people will often question is why Anne Boleyn is still buried at the Chapel of St. Peter. Anne Boleyn is somebody who is viewed as having suffered a huge miscarriage of justice. The overwhelming majority, in fact, I only know of one historian who thinks that there is proof that Anne had been guilty of some of the charges levied against her. That's one name amongst thousands, millions. Most people firmly believe, myself very much included that Anne Boleyn was completely innocent of all of the charges that were brought against her. And that belief was even becoming popularised by the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And so, a question remains why Anne wasn't reburied in more grandeur. It's been asked why Elizabeth I, who did show quiet displays, and the word quiet is the important thing there. She did show quiet, shows of loyalty to her mother. There is that beautiful checkers ring that contains two images, one of what is very clearly Anne Boleyn, and the other is Elizabeth. The Queen wore, and I've seen the ring in person, and it is unbelievably minuscule. The images are smaller than your little finger's fingernail. I mean, it's absolutely tiny. But there is this question, you know, why wasn't Anne Boleyn reburied in more splendour at, say, somewhere like Westminster Abbey, which would have been more fitting? And this is certainly true to a degree, but that is to overlook that the Tower of London is actually a palace. To give the Tower its full title, it's His Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. In short, it is a royal palace. And as such, the chapel of St. Peter Advincula Vincula is a royal chapel and is buried as Queen Anne Boleyn in a royal chapel. And it's that reason why I believe that her remains are still there to this day. So that brings me to the end of this episode, my first episode in the Tudor Chess podcast series. I hope that was informative and that you will learned something new. I'll be very curious to hear if people have got differing opinions to me on the remains of Anne Boleyn, but As I've made it clear, I see no holes in Dr. Murat's assessment. So that brings me to the end of this episode one of the Tudor Chest, the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll be mixing things up in episode two and looking at costuming in Tudor film and television, highlighting the productions that get it right and those that get it wrong. I'll also be asking the question, does costume accuracy actually matter? I'll also be releasing a bonus episode solely to followers of my Patreon account, looking at the different depictions of Anne Boleyn's execution and the costuming therein and determining which comes closest to the descriptions that we have of that fateful day in May 1536. Again, thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends and across your social media accounts. Keep up to date with me, then please head to my Instagram account at the Tudor Chest. And if you'd like to support the channel, then please head patreon.com forward slash the Chest. I'll speak to you soon.